Well, greetings, everybody. I am Chris Martin, welcoming you once again to Bombadil's Porch, and I am joined, as usual, by Caleb Klontz and Nate Larmore. Larmore is a proper pronunciation of Nate Larmore's name that <laughs> I have you, just Chris. recently learned. I've been saying wrong literally since I met him. So there, that is my public penance for for not uh, ever getting his name right. He said so perfectly. Thank you. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> Well, we are three Christian fathers that uh, do really enjoy this opportunity to spend time together on the porch, uh, sharing our view of God's Word and God's world together. Today, we're going to be looking at God's Word through some interesting lenses. We'll be discussing, by way of topics, uh, two things. We'll begin with a devotional thought on vision and darkness, and then we will take to the world of C.S. Lewis, wherein we will study the long shadow of the Tower of Babel, in which shade man is undone. So, a lot of fun things to look forward to, but we'll begin with you, Nate. Thank you, Chris. I'm going to borrow from Mr. Chambers and um, one mm. of the, I particularly enjoyed one of his devotionals. Um, of course, I say that and, and really his wife is what, who put all of this material together based on his teaching, his seminary teaching, I believe. Uh, so kind of a, a really cool uh, result of his ministry and her ministry. Mm. And we get to be the beneficiaries of that. This particular Devotional is called Vision and Darkness, and uh, it comes from Genesis chapter 15. And I'll read the the first, um, it sounds long, but it won't be long, first 15 verses here. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. I want to focus on that section there in verse 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Whenever God gives a vision to a Christian, it is as if he puts him in the shadow of his hand, in the words of Isaiah chapter 49. 
The saint's duty is to be still and listen. There is a darkness that comes from too much light. That is the time to listen. The story of Abram and Hagar in Genesis 16 is an excellent example of listening to so-called good advice during a time of darkness, rather than waiting for God to send the light. When God gives you a vision and darkness follows, you must wait. God will bring the vision he has given you to reality in your life if you will wait on his timing. Never try to help God fulfill his word. Abram went through 13 years of silence, but in those years all of his self-sufficiency was destroyed. He grew past the point of relying on his own common sense. Those years of silence were a time of discipline, not a period of God's displeasure. There is never any need to pretend that your life is filled with joy and confidence. Just wait upon God and be grounded in Him. So the question for me is, do I trust it all in the flesh? Have I learned to go beyond all confidence in myself and other people of God? Do I trust in books and prayers or other joys in my life? Or have I placed my confidence in God Himself, not just in His blessings? Remember, I am Almighty God, El Shaddai, the All-Powerful God. The reason we are all being disciplined is that we will know God is real. As soon as God becomes real to us, people pale by comparison, becoming shadows of reality. Nothing that other saints do or say can ever upset the one person who is built on God. So I thought of that, guys, for today, and I just think... None of us is a stranger to times of darkness or quiet. I've often wondered if you guys have thought this as well, when you read through Genesis and it's so easy to read through chapters and forget that decades are passing right mm -hmm. in front of you. And that for someone like Abram, you think, well, God's talking to him again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 13 years later or more in some cases. And during it had, how hard must it have been for him during those, the in-between times to not hear but have a promise and be wondering when will it be fulfilled. So I just think um, even though we don't live exactly the nomadic life of Abraham, uh, we're still men just like him. And I, if I think I can relate on some, there have been some times where it was like, God, I know you're there, but why won't you speak? Even though, you know, not hearing it audibly, but there are those times of just rich communion with God and your personal devotion, or even if it's just you out there worshiping him, uh, I have times of worship in my car. Uh, that's part of my plug for having a great sound system in your car because you can <laughs> crank it <laughs> nice. and sing badly and no one can tell, even you. Uh, but but there, then those are wonderful times to cling to. But there are other times where it feels like it feels like my worship feel like I'm singing to myself, even though I'm lifting my heart to the Lord. It feels like there are all those times of uh, what what in this in this lesson might be called darkness, or at mm -hmm. least is being referred to. But though I love that line that Chambers has there that those are not necessarily sometimes it could be a matter a result of sin and division between me my, and a division in my uh, relationship with the Lord. But more often, but many other times it wasn't signs of God's displeasure, but it was a time of discipline, not punishment, but discipline and refinement. So hopefully that blesses you guys in the way it blessed me. Any, any thoughts on that, by the way, can you relate or is there, can you, is there a perspective that you can add to, uh, to further help bless each other and our listeners?
think it's is a common maybe misnomer that there's sort of this static state of easy happiness or of experiential closeness with the presence of God. That's what the Christian life is normally meant to be. And that can be very unnerving when those seasons of, of shadow come. Uh, but I, I think it's, it is good to remember that the general is always there. The King's always there. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it is not necessary for him to always come and and spend all day standing next to us saying, you're still doing a good job. Keep it <laughs> up. I'm just so proud of you, Private Chris Martin, for um, mediocrely completing these menial tasks, you know, <laughs> uh, that it's enough for him to say, we win, stand strong, and, and carry on. Uh, and I've left you with my spirit and my word and all that you need to do well. And so, yeah, when there's, when there are those seasons, I think there's sometimes there's an existential flailing about a bit. Uh, the experience has changed. Has truth gone with it? <laughs> mm -hmm. And to say, no, no, truth never changes. The king will, will always be back. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. The spirit's there. Um, I was just thinking, you know, one of the things that we have that Abraham, Abram or Abraham didn't as he didn't have other other worshipers of God really mm -hmm. around him. You know, we've got each other. I know we talk about it a lot. Yeah. The need for building camaraderie, building relationship with other guys. Uh -oh. um, I can already and, see uh, Nate, Nate's spooling up. <laughs> <laughs> my, my legs starting <laughs> to twitch. Yeah. Yeah. I feel uh, a sermon coming on yeah, here. The soapbox yeah. is scooting across the yeah. floor already. Here we go. But that is something you talk a lot about. And I think that that's, mm. you know, that's, um, something that we often don't do well as men is we don't seek out other men. I mm -hmm. mean, we, we know that's true, but then we don't have the relationships. So when the dry times come, when the hard times come, when the darkness, you know, the shadows come and, uh, and we're not seeing the light, we need other men to say, no, look, look that way, you know, on the horizon, the light, the light is there. It's coming. Um, you know, take, take, take heart, have courage. Let's press on together. And, and we need that. But we need to be building those relationships, not just in those hard times, right? Because yes. that's what happens is we, we don't. And then, you know, how often do we hear, you know, some guy, oh, I'm so discouraged and disheartened right now. But you've got no godly friends that you've ever built into. Maybe you've got friends that are not not Christians or people that you hang out with on the weekends or whatever, but you don't actually have relationships. So, Right. You know, mm -hmm. Caleb, as you were talking there, what came to mind was Job and his three friends oh. who were anything but a blessing Great to him. Great friends. But you know, and I'm gonna, I might be reading too much into this, but I did they come from afar? Does anyone know? I don't know how far they journeyed. Yeah. It was enough where they had to journey. So there was some journeying like that. I'm going to yeah. start work, working that into everyday language. Uh, but you know what's interesting is if, in fact, it, it kind of makes you wonder how well they knew him. I mean, they did know him mm -hmm. on some level, but I, I think sometimes, um, as you said, if we just if we if if we just reach out to our brothers that are going through trial in those hard times, assuming we even know about it, that's a, a real, a real sure. risk. Or if we even have a relationship with them yet. I mean, that's the yeah. hard thing. And, and, but, and one of the worst things I think I could do is reach into someone's, someone's trial, time of trial, time of mm -hmm. pain, and be a Job friend. I mean, that's good. Mm, Each right. of them gets rebuked. And I think for me, that's one of the concerns I have when I, 
find myself suddenly in a situation where I'm trying to reach out to a brother who is going through the ringer and I barely know him. And it's kind of, I feel like I'm on thin ice at all times, you know, Lord, give me, give me the words to say. But the thing that scares me is when you read through Job's friend's statements, there's a lot in there that you think, amen. Mm-hmm. And then God rebukes all of them. So, uh, but I think. Right. That, well, yeah. Usually it wasn't the stuff you said amen to that he was rebuking them for. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. We can say a lot of stuff that's true. It just may not actually apply to this particular situation. <laughs> yes. Well said. Well said. And I think a lot of times if you to your point, Caleb, if you have not forged relationship, if you haven't galvanized that in in the day-to-day, week-to-week interactions with our brothers here in the community, when they are going through it, you find mm-hmm. yourself in a situation where I don't know what to say because I don't know this man and he doesn't know me and I care about him, but I really don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas when my friends are going through something, uh, you're in a much better position to to be a real source of blessing and encouragement to them. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, guys. I enjoyed uh, enjoyed the discussion as always. Um, Chris, you set up a really interesting <laughs> next part of our show here. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. <laughs> uh, we uh, took a challenge, a number of us uh, men, a while back, including all members of the porch here to try to read two books together. The third book in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy that we would, I believe, all commend to our audience, uh, which is made up of Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and then That Hideous Strength. And when you read the books, you you realize where his focus was at because there's a book that's this, you know, it's as thick as your pinky, another book that's as thick <laughs> as your pinky, and then there's a book that's like a thumb and a half, you mm. know, and it. Uh, that's where most of the writing went, and it, you get the sense that that's the book he wanted to write, and he just wanted an extended prelude. <laughs> to I should have known when Chris said we're going to read; he would pick the longest of the trilogy, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, length, the length of book three is is greater than the sum of the first two. I think. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. So it's a it's a chunk. It's not unbearable, but it's and it's interesting. It's uh, you reading. have to get into mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah, it's a little it's slow on the pickup. I think all three of them are a little slow. They're all on slow the, on the yeah, on the pickup. And you have to understand why. You know, Lewis really. There's a number of concepts he wants to rub in because it's as much about teaching a point as it is about entertaining the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that along with his shorter, I think, fifty page um, essay booklet. Yep. Uh, on the abolition of man, his critique of of trends in in modern education, uh, and it's a fascinating, fascinating set of of things to read together, and especially more and more, I think we're all realizing just how prophetic mm. it was, and and how clearly those guys and gals, uh, I think people like Dorothy Sayers as well, that I would include in that same group, who still were enough in the old ways, if you will, um, that that was their native environment, that they so acutely saw what was different uh, about what was emerging and coming next. So I, I really appreciated the books. I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. And um, there's a, a subset of our group that already had one discussion uh, that you guys weren't able to be a part of. So you're coming in cold. Uh, but uh, How did that go, by the way? It was really fun. I really enjoyed yeah. it. Uh, and yeah, it would have been nice to have had your voices there for that meeting, but that means you got to keep your, keep your powder dry for this conversation <laughs> stale right now. Keep it stale. <laughs> I hope not. I, stale it. <laughs> oh no. We've got too many other things I've been reading since then. That's the problem. Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. That's true, right? 
here's here's maybe an initial topic to open up with. Uh, this was fascinating to me. Uh, I first read the book uh, quite a few years ago, and it's weird to be old enough to say I did anything quite a few years ago. <laughs> it's like when I hear our teenagers say, when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, um, yes, hmm. yesterday. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, this I think was back, probably back in high school when I read the f- the full trilogy last. I've mm. read Out of the Silent Planet since and parts of Paralandra, but it's been a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... I hadn't noticed how central to the book the imagery of of marriage was. Mm-hmm. And it just almost jumped off the page when I opened up that hideous strength, chapter one, first page, first word, matrimony. Mm-hmm. Like it actually takes some work in a work of fiction <laughs> to make that be mm-hmm. the first word in your book. And so I would just be curious maybe from you guys, what was some of your observations on on how Lewis takes that picture of, of marriage and uses it as a metaphor for society, for relationships, for humanity, I'm just all down the line. Mm-hmm. I found it interesting. I, a few times I had to go back and remind myself when he was writing, because that does tell you, it, you know, what was going on <laughs> was in this his time. Last week or the week before? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um but it also there's a timelessness to it. It shows the centrality of marriage, whether mm-hmm. in the whether it's in the success of a culture or society, or the opposite. Um, I just I, that that jumped out at me. And again, looking back at some of the very things we're talking about now, were top of mind for him to work even into a work and into his fictional work. Um, that, 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 that I think is pretty interesting. Also interesting too, to your point. I mean, when's the last time you read? sci-fi because that's what we're talking about in a sense uh that that marriage was a central theme um even the first word as you said <laughs> yeah well, and not in the end i mean it ends right on that theme on that mm-hmm. note as well so. it does but marriage and specifically marriage not as something that's being critiqued mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right because mm-hmm. we've all seen sci-fi i think it's tried to deconstruct the patriarchy yeah and marriage is, is a central part of that but but to see, yeah, in a sci-fi work, marriage upheld as one of the most important things in the universe. We we tend to think of marriage uh, as something that's been mostly recently under attack in the last generation. But he's writing, um, I'm trying to recall, actually, uh, Abolition was in 1943. I don't remember the final book of the, but he's writing several generations ago. And, and it shows that even to him at that time. The, mm-hmm. the importance of the institution, the important mm-hmm. importance it has um, throughout a society. Yeah. One of the metaphors that he uses in both works that was interesting as a linguist, he, he uses the picture of nouns and verbs um, or in abolition of man. It's, it's more the interplay between um the imperative and the indicative, mm-hmm. but it's the same concept he uses in both. And that men are the nouns or the indicatives, if you will, and that women are the verbs. Mm. And that when they get that backwards, that's when you get into all kinds of trouble. And mm. so the where the men primarily fail is when they stop being the bastion of unchanging reality. Right? That this is what is true. And you see that, for example, in, in NICE, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, this organization that represents the, really the spread of evil in the world, 
they they are characterized by an almost pathological refusal to define anything right it's all it's all verbs all the stuff that they're doing and and adjectives all very good positive adjectives but there's no nouns and that's what the man in the book gets sucked into he wants to be in the center of the action he wants to be in the middle of the verbs and to do so he's can, he's willing more and more and more to sacrifice all the nouns in his life and you can just watch that all these objective realities is letting go one after the mm-hmm. other do they sound familiar, by the way? That's, I mean, to our, to our <laughs> yeah. listeners, I mean, exactly. it, it's, it's fa- that's why I'm, I'm continually amazed at when these things were actually authored. Because right. in some respects, you could say, wow, this is somebody that's reacting to to the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, right. and yet, this is someone that was writing uh, 60 to 80 years ago. Uh, fascinating, and especially yeah. that business about the verbs and adjectives. Mm-hmm. We live in a time where it is all about hyperbole. Absolutely. It's all about emotional response. All it, pathos, no logos. No, mm-hmm. yeah. There's no, there's no truth. There's no even facts have become unimportant. Right. Um, it's just how I respond to it, mm-hmm. um, and how I respond to it. It will be inconsistent from one day to the next, but it's that I am responding. There's exactly. Action. Exactly. Yeah. And then on the flip side, where he critiques the the feminine trends that he had seen, mm-hmm. where the the main woman character, uh, she is increasingly trying to live a life just by the nouns, mm-hmm. right? She wants to just be level-headed. She wants to be academic about things, very professional, very, um, you know, constantly trying to stuff her intuition, stuff her emotional response to things, mm-hmm. uh, to prevent herself from giving herself over to to the to what she thinks and feels is good right that that would that would be a surrender a loss and and so her her trajectory you know then following that path from the skeptical the objective the literal uh to eventually realizing it's okay to surrender to the good and and to and to accept that this is a, a right and a good thing and there's a wonderful section um where she recalls that she's beautiful, <laughs> right? She had ignored that whole part, not in a vain way. And it specifically says not in a vain way, but she at one point sees a mirror and realizes that for the first time in a long time, she realizes she's a feminine creature, mm-hmm. right? And that there's an inherent beauty and glory to the, to being a feminine creature. And then she realizes that she has surrendered her beauty entirely to this individual who sort of represents the objective good in the book. So much so that then she is willing to give her beauty to her husband mm. uh, as part of her surrender to the objective good. And, and that was just a great picture. And, you know, her, her husband, as is usually the case in, in reality, so I think that's why C.S. Lewis wrote it that way. He's a lot more knuckleheaded and it takes him a lot longer to come around <laughs> and figure things out. But eventually he has to go through a similar trajectory of realizing um I have to stop valuing the verbs. I've got to stop wanting to be in the middle of the action. I've got to start wanting to have roots in objective truth that are unmovable. And when he's finally willing to do that, he ends up having the strength to withstand the force of the verbs around him that are actually moving in a very dark direction. Mm. Any other thoughts that you guys had just along the lines of masculinity, femininity, marriage, um, that theme running through the book? Well, a question to you guys, uh, kind of on behalf of our listeners that haven't read the trilogy. Sure. Um, if they're going to go out, um, do they need to read, what do you think? Do they need to read all three? 
and sequence? Can they dive into book three? Um, yeah, a little bit of logistics to try yeah. to encourage our, our listeners here. Yeah. You could. You could. You I think. It. Yeah. Yeah, you could. You'll you'll enjoy it more if you read the first ones. Because mm-hmm. there's, yeah. there's some payoff when certain characters and things take place. You're like, hey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Three feels a bit different, obviously. Very it's, it's different. It's very yeah. different than the than the first two um I remember in high school being convinced i had got the wrong book from the library that this was not part of the same trilogy did c.s lewis even write this yeah until finally you see ransom show up and you're like oh there's oh, a no, yeah, character spoiler alert <laughs> sorry we're spoiling a lot of stories but anyway yeah well there's a reason that uh, doug wilson says we should not call it the space trilogy but the ransom trilogy that's He's really true. pushing I for did, a. Uh, I did hear a lecture by him on that very subject. <laughs> <laughs> He's had a lot of lectures on that. I think he's yeah. Now I'm wondering, Chris. Um, a lot of themes in the in the book that you know you challenged us to read. What what was it? And maybe this is where you're heading anyway. What was it about this particular book? And of course, the uh, the essay, the Lewis essay. What was it about those two that was particularly on your mind right now, or in the last few months? Sure, part of it I think is because of how prescient they were in writing about what we're living in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are very much uh, entering an age when we've completely lost uh, as a as a culturally characteristic value, I would say at least those, those things that Lewis is talking about how, you know, as being of central importance. So there's pockets, pockets that have retained what is good. Um, but our, our culture as a whole has largely turned its back entirely on some of these core values, especially when it comes to how we are discipling our children culturally. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about, okay, what, what can we do as parents? What can we do through the church? Um, not as not as the primary mission of the church, but churches as representing groups of like-minded families. Uh, what can we be doing to recover some of these just central things to, about creating men and women? Uh, and that's where the essay, The Abolition of Man, comes into play, where Lewis, I think, rightly said... These trends um, are not just a perversion of our humanity. It's the undoing of it. Mm-hmm. it. At a fundamental level, we stop being what we are. Like It's not just an epistemological quagmire. It's, it actually is an ontological <laughs> problem. Mm-hmm. We, we're losing touch with the nature of reality itself. And then all that comes from that. Um, and it's often been said, Lewis, one of his missions is try to re-enchant the world to make us realize that this cold and sterile naturalism that our world has been feeding on because it allows us to do whatever we want, uh, it, it has blinded us to the, the more real things in the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not the, uh, it's not the part of the grass that can do photosynthesis that makes grass special. It's the way this living thing waves in the wind to the glory of God that makes it special, right? It's, it's as creation reflects the creator and as creation glorifies the creator, that's what makes our world 
our world. That's its essence. Mm. Uh, and, and it's not, its essence is not the atomic weight of its atoms. Do you find that, as you said that, what comes to mind, and I love, I love documentaries, um, <laughs> um, but what comes to mind is, for the most part, the, the science, the astronomy, you know, the, the more Nova, if you will, type documentaries. Right. <laughs> Watched um, a lot of Nova documentaries in homeschool. <laughs> and, and, and so much of it, you're left at the end. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm usually left um, disappointed. Right. Um, I, I went, you know, what point did, um, did science programs start being v about very little about what is and very little astounding about what is and started being about just speculation and could be this could be that. Uh, it's kind of like you go watch the history channel now and there's no history on there. It's, it's a bunch of degreed individuals mm -hmm. speculating about what probably happened or what could have happened or well, what's all about the narrative. Right. Yeah. And it's, you're just, you're left. I don't know about you. I'm just left disappointed routinely. And it, and there's, I think it's interesting too. your point about grass. It's a great example is some of the glory of grass is that it dies and comes back and dies mm -hmm. and comes back. And then right. in the blades of grass for you golfers out there. <laughs> the blades of grass shift during the day. They follow the sun. Um, I mean, there's just a, there is a, a, and I'm using this to pay further tribute to Lewis. I'm using this in a Narnia way. There is a deep magic to it. <laughs> right. That yes, we can find this really technical, boring way. We understand how these things work somewhat. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, but we know just enough about how it works that we think, okay, we've solved that one. Let's move on. And, right. um, and it's, and it, it's, it's almost seems like it's an effort to dumb down or bore, boring fi making up words now, mm -hmm. the natural world around us. Yes. And I, I, that's something that has captured my, my passion when it comes to just even my own children and, and raising them is how do we recapture some of that to, to realize that when, if you drill things down far enough, what you don't find is an inexplicable anomaly in a chaotic nowhere that accounts for the ordered everywhere. And, and that's really where our world is trying to find its way back to, because if it can find its way back to that, if that's truth, then I can finally turn the guilt of my conscience off. <laughs> right. It, it truly is a vestigial evolutionary mechanism and I can think my way around it. However, that's what a, what a horribly boring way to understand the world. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, if, if we understand that, that if you boil everything down, it ultimately always will come back to a speech act of God, that this whole universe is a poem. That is what it is, right? Mm -hmm. It is, it is poetry. It is prose. It, and it's telling an epic tale, an epic tale of Jesus as the hero. And it's doing that with bricks and it's doing that with blood and it's doing that with people. Uh, and that, that's, that is actually what reality is. Mm -hmm. And to be able to appreciate that and to understand what God made a me to be in this poem and how I'm made to sing my lines, uh, that's, that's fascinating. And it's not a divorce from the scientific realm because then when I pull out my microscope, 
and I, I watch the inner workings of a plant cell and I go, my goodness, right? There's so much in there to glorify the creator for and, and to somehow have come as a culture to a place where we can do that in a reductionistic way where we say, well, therefore we don't need God. It's just, it's mind blowing. So, so I, I loved the books because they, they set that up, I think so well, they, they make you appreciate in a tangible way, what is lost uh, in that hideous strength. You just feel the loss, mm. right? As you watch the forest disappear, as you watch the river get diverted, as, as you watch the, the machine spread over and, and belch its, its, you know, industrial, um, just obnoxiousness <laughs> over the English countryside. Mm. He just makes you feel what you're losing. And then in the abolition of man, he just puts his finger. There's the problem right there. Can we take a little time to talk about what's probably been the most, even though most haven't read the abolition of man? It is, it is dense. It is a dense read. I, you know, but it's, not particularly long. No, no, it's short. But it's there's okay. a lot yeah. there, but you, okay. you do have to kind of work your way through it. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the famous lines that gets memed and quoted and, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. often completely out of context. And you don't have to go very far to get to it. <laughs> no, it's no, right there. Right there. Uh, <laughs> At least that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah, that's about to test that. Um, that we're producing men without chests. Yes. Um, let's talk about what does that mean. <laughs> mm. Yep. We castrate and bid the gelding be fruitful is the end of that line. Yeah. Caleb. What? As a chesty man. Yeah. Tell us what a chestless man is and why that's bad. Is it because as bad as a beardless man? It's worse. Ooh. Yeah. Because not all men have beards, but all men should have chests. Ooh. ooh. See, that was, that was a bit of logic right there. Well there you go. I don't. It's been, you know, I read that first. Uh, and uh, I find I find Lewis uh, not always easy to understand. It's just that's just uh, I love Lewis. I can read Chronicles of Narnia all day, the Ransom trilogy uh, much easier. But when he starts getting to some of his other stuff, <laughs> when he's trying, when he's academic, when he's, when he's writing essays, right? Actually, you know, I don't know why, but the abolition of man for me has always been one. And I've read it a couple of times, but it's always been one that I get done and I go. I'm not really sure what I just read. <laughs> uh, so, not quite as bad as the Puritans, some of the Puritans, but uh, at least, you know, they're laying out their argument uh, in order. But, uh, <laughs> well, you've got, okay. So, so okay. as I recall, because it has been a little while, as I recall, um, as a person, part of what we are is we have a, we have a mind, we have, we have passions. Mm-hmm. And, and that would be your head and your stomach. Mm -hmm. The chest, a lot of us would think it's bravado, it's courage. It's a lot of times how it gets right. used. Sure. And that's not what he's talking about. It's he's the tau. Yeah. And by tau, the, it's this, uh, you know, that men without chests are men that do not have a will that's focused around, as you said, the tau and the tau mm -hmm. being defined as, and I think that's interesting too, for being a great apology, uh, Christian apologist. In Abolition of Man, Lewis is not defending Christianity. Hmm. In fact, he makes reference to a variety of other major world religions, but he he brings attention to the point that even though they're dramatically different in their doctrine, I don't think he makes that point, but mm -hmm. as a Christian, you would quickly interpret that. Um, there is a body of belief that has some similarity, that there is something, there is objective truth that is greater than me. 
that is greater than you. And the world is not what you think of it. The world is what it is. The universe is what it is. And then, and, and not just materially speaking, there are, there are objective truths around human, your choices. There's right and wrong. And, and, and he defines that with this kind of broad, this word that kind of captures it all, the Tao. And, um, and so in terms of men without chess, um, what you can create is, and, and what has happened, I would say in our society is we've created men and women that have sharp minds that have been taught to, uh, indulge their passions, whatever they may be. And they have no sense of will around a mm -hmm. sense of objective right and wrong to guard, to guide any of it. Yeah. And as a result, you've got, you've got empty people or in his, as he said back in 43, which is when he wrote the essay, um, we're creating a, we will be creating a generation of men with no chests. Um, I guess maybe a little bit of background there. Um, Chris, can you kind of talk us through, I thought this was interesting, why he even wrote the essay. Um, he was a professor of, of literature. I mm -hmm. think that was his trade at, uh, was he at Oxford? Was uh, Cambridge? One of those oh, rats, no. Google. One yes. of those highfalutin places. Um, where now all of a sudden I can't remember <laughs> where they used to go to the pub with Tolkien afterwards, Oxford, um, and I'm a bunch of backwards. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, as a professor of literature, he was handed a textbook, the green book, yeah, which he calls the green book to protect the guilty. Although it's funny. If Both you go listen Oxford and Cambridge, oh, yeah. that's, oh, why. There that's go. why we were confused. We, right. Yes. We couldn't we, remember which yes, one yeah. of the two. Why and it was one both. when you can yes. have two. That's right. right. Um, he was handed the, this textbook that was a, I think it was a, a, a grammar textbook, mm -hmm. right? For grade schoolers? I believe so. Yeah, let's pull it up here. Uh -huh. We'll make sure we inform our audience properly here. And he was asked to review it because he's an expert in the, in the mm -hmm. field. And, um, and he did more than review it. Yeah, he did. He, uh, he, he calls this thing the green book to, to protect the guys that wrote it. And he even mm -hmm. comes up with some fictional names for the two authors mm -hmm. that wrote it. And he basically says, this he's, is not a grammar book at all. He's not very kind. This is, no. this is a, this is a, a, in an actually the, a terrible insult to the students, mm -hmm. but not for, because it fails in its ability to critique grammatical structure. Right. Uh, because it's, it, it actually teaches him an entirely new way of thinking. Well, let me, let me give you the example that triggered him yeah. <laughs> to use a modern word. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't like, me using, he wouldn't like me using that word. Nope. Uh, but it's also interesting because it's something that probably wouldn't even bother 99.9% .9 of us today. We wouldn't even see it. Right. No, and and see he it. saw in this a civilizational threat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amazing. So that, that's enough to interesting to note. It says in the second chapter, Gaius and Titius uh, quote the well-known story of Coleridge at the waterfall. You all know the story of Coleridge at the waterfall, right? Well, yes. I do now because um, yeah. I went back and read it right, yeah, after I this. Never <laughs> heard of it. That's also another reason why our civilization is doomed is that none of us know the well-known stories anymore, but that's another topic. Uh, you remember that there were two tourists present. The one called it sublime and the other pretty. And that Coleridge mentally endorsed the first judgment and rejected the second with disgust. Gaius and Titius comment as follows. When the man said, this is sublime, he appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall. Actually, he was not making a remark about the waterfall, but a remark about his own feelings. What he was saying is, really, I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime, or shortly... I have sublime feelings. 
Here are a good many deep questions settled in a pretty summary fashion. (laughs) But the authors are not yet finished. They add, This confusion is continually present in language as we use it. We appear to be saying something very important about something, and actually we are only saying something about our own feelings. So that literally was enough for C.S. Lewis to say, if this continues, we're doomed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love to. And he's right. Within, <laughs> within, a, within a few paragraphs, he starts pointing out all the obvious exceptions to this. But it's, again, it, this is a book that was written to kind of teach its students to not be mm-hmm. manipulated by tourism or marketing hype. Mm-hmm. Right. On the other hand, you're right. He cuts down to, hold on a second. You're not teaching grammar at all. Um, you're actually dumbing down the world for these students before mm-hmm. they're even at an age where they could make a choice. Mm-hmm. So you've actually robbed mm-hmm. them of part of the human experience by teaching them to think in such a limited way. Right. Yeah. Because elsewhere, C.S. Lewis would say, as an example, he said, I don't enjoy the society of young children, <laughs> <laughs> but I understand that that's a defect in me. Mm. Mm. Why? Because I believe something about children that's contrary to my feelings. And so I know that I ought to feel that the society of young children is quite a wonderful thing. Same that the elderly are venerable. He says, as another example, Mm. uh, I I know that the elderly are venerable and they ought to be valued as such. Uh, Whether or not my feelings correspond to that. Mm-hmm. That's part of what he describes as, as the Tao, this understanding of, of deep virtues, attitudes which are truly right and others which are truly false uh, that extend to the universe and the way things are. He says uh, that that is um, really important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is really important because it, it goes outside of, of bare naturalism. Right, you might might make the argument. Well, everybody needs to acknowledge that a waterfall is a place where water falls. Right, those are the those are the important facts of the matter. And Lewis would say, that's, but that's not the essence of the waterfall. Mm. Like the essence of the waterfall is that it is a sublime thing. Mm-hmm. Right, that 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 the experience of watching waterfall should make you say, there is a there is a thing that is is good in an essence in a way that is operating at a deeper level than the natural things I can simply, you know, label mm. or diagram. And that to reject that, to not, not be affected by a waterfall as a sublime thing is a mark of, of evil. And he brings that out in that hideous strength all the time mm-hmm. as these individuals are talking about everything from food to sunsets to sex. And they're, they're breaking it down. Well, oh, you're simply speaking of course, in you know, um, an experiential language where I prefer, why don't we use some scientific accuracy here? And, and they break everything down into this mm. nauseating uh, technical language, especially wither. I mean, everybody's mm. appropriately named uh, everybody's favorite character. Can I risk insulting some of our audience here? I hope not, but there's nothing to your point, Chris, there's yeah. nothing worse than having an amazing experience with someone that's trying to dumb it down the whole time. Um, I, I got to say, I mean, there's, there's rapturous experiences, whether it's with nature or other people. And, and there's nothing worse than being, having that moment with a killjoy. Uh, and it could be, it could be a trip to the sea. I think of a documentary I saw some years ago and it was, um, it was a focus on this guy that was this uh, Google had hired him. He was going to be this, this, this brilliant, he was a visionary, a theorist, a technologist, 
a mm-hmm. futurist. Mm. And the documentary was actually pretty depressing. Uh, as you, as you it, and I was kind of looking forward to it. And, and the scene that I just thought captured how this guy, for all of his brilliance, whatever ridiculous IQ he had, they went to the ocean and they were just going there and he was staring out to sea, kind of lost in thought. And the documentarian, the videographer asked, what are you thinking about right now? And he just, he kind of had this, this amazed look in his eyes. He says, I was just thinking about the number of calculations that are constantly being processed out there. And I remember thinking, really? I mean, <laughs> you're looking at the ocean and a sunset mm-hmm. and you're trying to break it down into how many calculations mm-hmm. are taking place. You've missed it completely. Mm-hmm. Um, another experience I think of was at a Seahawks games a number of years ago and they do, um, they do that bit where they it's a lottery of some kind and the fan gets up there and he's the 12th man he's standing up there and like 80,000 people are screaming and yelling and this guy's standing up there kind of representing the 12th man and it's pretty awesome like you you know for even for a believer you're thinking man someday it's gonna be (laughs) like on some level i'm getting this tiny little shadow or tiny little glint of it'll be jesus and there will be probably hundreds of millions of us cheering for him. And uh, I remember having that experience and I remember somebody saying, man, if I was up there, I'd do, you know, and they totally dumbed down the experience. Right. Um, so anyway, I, I kind of yeah. go back to, there's a magic. And I think as parents, mm-hmm. this, there's a week, sometimes we can become the guys that wrote the green book with our kids. If we're not careful, our kids get really excited about something Mm -hmm. and we dumb it down because we're worried about maybe their feelings will be hurt or maybe, you know, if they get really, if they get their hopes too high about something or if they sign up for the talent show, somebody might laugh at them and then they'll be scarred for life. Yes, that could happen. But man, why would we be the ones Mm -hmm. that dumb it down? Why would we be the ones that pull some of the, the magic of life out of their, out of their experience. And, um, anyway, so, uh, hopefully I didn't insult anybody in the audience, especially the science <laughs> ones. I'm a science geek myself. So sometimes, um, I, I, I have the same compulsion in a magical mm-hmm. moment to say, well, you realize that the light is actually just refracting through the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And of course you see the deeper colors here and there. And, and, and mm-hmm. as opposed to just standing there and saying, Praise God for this amazing sunset that I get to be a part of um, without yeah. trying to explain it or ruin it with a bunch of words. Or do both. You know, that's do the, part of <laughs> do the explanation later after sure. you see the yeah. green flash, right? Be able to stop and, and <laughs> yeah, stop and admire it. But we can, en- we can enchant our science again mm. because uh, science is, I mean, that is, it's just a magician. Right, a magician with an with an unusual vocabulary, because um, all all the things that really matter, we don't understand. Mm. Right, it's all magic. Uh, we uh, gravity, gravity's magic. You know, uh, you can define how it operates and its consistency and all that stuff, but no one what knows why is gravity. They it's can't a force. What is a force? It forces things. That's <laughs> circular. I know. What does that mean? It means it's magic. That's right. It's the a electromagnetic force. spectrum. Let me show you the a, same. A, a drawing of the space-time continuum. No, that doesn't tell me. It's a drawing. There's there's not a right. grid out there. Tell me how it works. And you're yeah. right. You what can, is light? It's a particle wave duality. What does that actually mean? We're not exactly sure. <laughs> <You> <laughs> and know? it's okay exactly. to have that answer. That's part of the magic. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And so does 
be able to describe, hey, it acts like this and it acts like this and this is what we can observe. That's great, but we don't have to disenchant things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a, at the heart of of this. And and Lewis, I think, gets a little carried away sometimes because of his love of mythology. I think sometimes he over enchants paganism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's that's an, a present theme. Uh, and so I think sometimes he does get a little too carried away with that. Uh, but we need to remember going back to Tom Bombadil. <laughs> As Christians, our songs are older, mm. right? We we know the first notes that made all the things, uh, and and we are the keepers of those, and we are to see the world through that lens, and and there's there's something a little thrilling about that. I think to look around and to say, we we know the maker of all of this. We are woven into the story of everything and and we know how it ends and our goodness is an ancient goodness and our righteousness is an ancient righteousness and our justice is an ancient justice and all these things that are happening uh why do why that's not how the world works why are the nations of the earth devising vain things why are there rulers in an uproar mm. i mean the guy who made all this stuff is laughing at you Mm-hmm. And then he will terrify you in his fury. Mm. You better figure out who the king is and you better kiss his ring mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or or he will unmake you. Uh, and and there's, there's something I think really not just compelling about that as a narrative, which is what our culture would want to do, reduce it to, to a narrative. No, it's, it's compelling because it's reality. And that, that's what I'm impassioned to pass on to my children. And again, I think Lewis just does a great job of throwing all this stuff into such sharp relief. Mm. Oh, I love it. Um, speaking of, um, I'm going to have to invite you guys, a, a, a few, a, another rebel and I, Ooh. Um, and of course being, we're part of the Lord's kingdom, so we're not rebelling against the almighty, but another, we do live in enemy territory, um, unfortunately, but that is the life of the Christian in a fallen world. So another rebel and I are putting together a little, a little uh, bonfire to pontificate and to, and to enjoy burning things. So that sounds like a nice time. uh, I'll share a little more detail with you. It'll be great. It'll be great. (laughs) And as I understand, there's a fresh body of wood that will be, sold shortly. So we'll, we'll have uh, we'll a have, short sale, but, uh, but <laughs> nice. I bring that up because how many great scenes in mythology are, are some guys or a, or a band of travelers sitting around a fire. There mm-hmm. is something special about a fire. Um, That's where the stories that matter are told. Yes. And under the stars. Um, so anyway, uh, more, uh, I'll share a little more with you on that, but I, I actually, I, this is the time of year I bring this up for our audience. This is a time of year where everything that was dead starts to come back to life. I just love that. I've never lived in a place with multiple seasons before. Um, and in the tropics where I grew up, it was the wet season and the dry season. Mm. <laughs> uh, in California, it was just the 70 degree season, which mm. is pretty awesome. However, around here, um, this is that time of year when the sun is up earlier and it sets later. Um, man, turn off the TV, mm-hmm. turn off the phone, go out and safely burn something in your fire pit with your kids. Yeah. not now is the time um, yes. because it's been pretty dry and who knows how early our no burn 
you know. Yes, before the bureaucrats be. ruin yet another thing, <laughs> get out there and enjoy this time of year. Yes. Uh, but there, but there's magic out there. Mm-hmm. There's mag- and, and there's Indeed. those are magical moments. The kids turn on, even if it's good stuff they're watching a documentary or whatever it is, uh, even a, just a great entertaining show. Turn it off. Get outside and 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 reconnect with this amazing planet that God has entrusted to us. Amen. Amen. Well, should we land her there? Oh, let's there's do it. There's much more we could say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I commend the book, um, both books, mm-hmm. to our audience. And the and essay, The Inner Ring. And The Inner Ring, yes. Okay, uh, that was the first one to bring that into my attention. I hadn't heard of it before. So there you go. That's what that's what uh, Mark uh, Studdock is all about anyway, right? There you go. Getting yeah. into The Inner Ring. It is, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so read... Read that as well. And that's why you, know, you listen to The Porch, so that Caleb can tell you things nobody else knows about. Uh-huh. <laughs> In addition to the interesting musical backgrounds of illustrators, right. uh, the esoteric essays of C.S. Lewis that nobody else has heard of. Well, as we do bring this to a close, uh, we do thank you for joining us in this conversation. Uh, always would appreciate having you join it in various capacities. Please do reach out to us. If you've got thoughts that you'd like to share, you can send us an email at bombadillsporch at gmail.com or go to our website, bombadillsporch.com. And we'd love to uh, hear a voicemail. Uh, you can leave us one there and let us know what you're thinking. We may be able to use that on a future podcast. Uh, so that's uh, where we will wrap up. But I want to leave us with with one closing thought, and that has to do with... Um, C.S. Lewis dipping all the way back to St. Augustine in the abolition of man in St. Augustine's definition of virtue, which he also said is, is what ought to be the goal of education. And that is the, the ordo amoris, ordered love, that virtue is loving what we should love and not loving what we shouldn't love. And that is always going to have to rest upon some immutable and unchangeable foundation of morality. And he writes, for every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold, cold vulgarity. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. So from all of us to all of you, we wish you a day of well-ordered affections. Mm -hmm.